following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. We want to continue this morning, though, on our Save series. In fact, we're almost done with it. After today, there will be one more message before we return back to our uh, Luke series that we've been doing for quite a while now. And the topic for this seventh message is perseverance. <clears throat> perseverance. Um, <clears throat> back in um, my youth group days, uh, when I was a, youth, a high school student here in the Chicagoland area, um, there was this really powerful revival that you've probably heard me reference on a number of occasions, particularly among the uh, Korean-American congregations that were here in the Chicago area. I mean, revival was just breaking out in youth group after youth group. And uh, so our church was definitely swept up in that revival that happened in the 1980s. <clears throat> and um, I remember there was this particular girl in our youth group that was also caught up in the revival with the rest of us. Um, and we ended up, after youth group days, going on to different colleges and basically sort of lost touch with her, you know. Uh, she was really talented, very beautiful. And <clears throat> we eventually, I eventually found out from mutual friends that she headed out to Los Angeles to try to make it in Hollywood. And it wasn't long after that news that my wife and I began to see her show up in these TV shows and commercials and movies that we were watching. I mean, it was just a very jarring thing to be watching a television show <clears throat> and suddenly seeing a high school friend pop up in one of the scenes. And it was, it was always a pleasant surprise. You know, after a while, we started guessing whether it was like Seinfeld or Friends or, or uh, Frasier or these, you know, 80s and 90s shows. Like, we never knew quite when she was going to show up. And so we'd get a good laugh and just really have a good time every time we saw her show up on these shows. But these sightings were always a bit bittersweet. And it's because through uh, other friends, we found out that she wasn't really walking with the Lord anymore. That um, she had sort of turned away from the faith that uh, she had grown up in. And she had actually gone through some pretty difficult church experiences that um, really shook her faith and turned her in another direction in her life. And even as I share that story, I, I suppose that some of you can identify with that, that faces pop into your mind of friends or family members or fellow church members that at one time seemed like they were following the Lord and really living for God. And yet, as you've gone into the later seasons of life, uh, maybe you've remained in the church but they've sort of drifted in another direction. And if you were to actually ask them point blank today, they would say, I don't consider myself a believer. I, I, don't, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, I don't believe in any of that stuff that I used to believe in in my youth. Um, and the questions begin to arise, don't they? Um, did that person ever truly believe? Was their faith ever genuine? Because... It sure looked like it when we were in youth group together or in college campus ministry together. 
And then the other question that arises is, if so, does that mean that they lost their salvation? That they were actually once saved, but they are no longer saved? At the heart of this doctrine of perseverance is this question, can a person who was once truly saved lose his or her salvation? In other words, is it possible to have what some call this assurance of salvation, to basically know that for certain I'm going to be in heaven when I die? On the one hand, if there is no such thing as an assurance of salvation, um, the question is raised, what peace can anyone have in their heart about the hope of heaven and being right with God. You know, we, in the message on justification, looked at that dynamic in the Catholic Church, right? This constant pressure to feel like, have I done enough to earn the approval of God and somehow know that I'm in a state of grace so that if I were to die in this moment, that I would be in heaven with the Lord. Um, Every time we stumble, every time we fail, there would be this insecurity Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe my faith is not genuine. On the other hand, people argue, if there is such a thing as this assurance of salvation, that you can know for certain that you're going to go to heaven at any moment in your life based on a decision that you've made, what's there to keep people from going off the deep end and basically living whatever kind of life you want? very smugly in the belief that no matter what I do, I know I'm going to be in heaven because I'm, quote, saved. I have this assurance of salvation that I know for certain, with no doubt, that I'll be in heaven. Now, traditionally, there have been two camps that have made a conclusion about this matter. The first camp is sometimes we talk about them as Calvinists, Calvinists. And in essence, what a Calvinist would say is that if your faith in Christ is genuine, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot. This is also sometimes known as the Reformed position. Now, some have labeled this position, once saved, always saved. And there's some level of truth in that statement, but as I unpack the message, I'm going to sort of hopefully let you understand why I don't think it's the best way to describe this position, is to say once saved, always saved. But in essence, the the, the heart of it is to say, you know, if you are a genuine believer, a follower of Jesus, then you can't lose your salvation, okay? It's a once-for-all done deal by God. The other side, often referred to as Arminians, say you could uh, lose your salvation, So that you can actually be at one point in your life in a place of genuine faith and belief in Jesus Christ, but you can make certain choices in your life that basically disqualify you from salvation and cause you to lose the salvation that you once possessed. Now, I I was thinking about doing this, but I decided not to. But I'm kind of curious as to where our church stands on this matter, because I suppose we're not all in one camp or the other. I'm going to guess that some of you are on one side and some of you are on the other. Um, James Arminius, the founder of this Arminian movement, basically said this. 
If David had died in the very moment in which he had sinned against Uriah by adultery and murder, he would have been condemned to death itself. What Arminius is saying is, is this. You know King David in the Old Testament, he lusted after Bathsheba when he happened to spy her taking a shower, a bath. And then he basically used this kingly, we don't like to use the terminology, but in truth, in their modern legal terms, it really would have been categorized as rape, you know, because he used his coercive authority as king to basically bed with her. So he slept with her, got her pregnant, and then basically had her husband killed in order to hide his sin, okay? Now, in the Old Testament story, David clearly repents, and he asks for God's forgiveness for these sins, these really horrible sins, and God forgives him and restores him. But what Arminius says is this, if David would have been walking across the street before he repented and he got gored by an ox or something like that, and he died before the prophet Nathan ever confronted him, and called him to repentance, and before he could repent, then David would have gone to hell. It's a timing issue. It's a timing issue. That's what Arminius says, okay? Um, John Wesley puts it like this, who was also an Arminian. The believer who takes eternal security for granted grows a little and a little slacker, slacker till ere long he falls again into the sin from which he was clean escaped. So he sins on, and sleeps on till he awakes in hell, okay? That's pretty frightening language there. But he's saying, here is a person that at one time was a believer, but slowly drifts into spiritual malaise. You just take your faith for granted, you take God for granted, and little by little you slide and you slide and you slide into a spiritual slumber until you find out that you've woken up in hell, okay? Now, um... I personally don't hold to this position. I am not an Arminian. I hold more to the Calvinist perspective, and I'm going to unpack for you why. But I want to say that this issue of being a Calvinist or a Reformed view of you know, your salvation versus being an Arminian, it's not about truth and heresy. It's not about if you believe this, then you're a heretic and you're going to go to hell, and if you believe this then you're a true believer, okay? Within the broader scope of Christianity, evangelical Christianity, we can actually disagree on this matter and still worship together as brother and sister in Christ, okay? There is a legitimate debate to be had here. But hopefully, by the time we're done, you'll understand why I'm a Calvinist on this matter and why I believe you cannot lose your salvation if you truly have genuine faith. Wayne Grudem, also a Calvinist, describes perseverance like this. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. In other words, what Grudem says is, by definition... The saints of God are defined by those who persevere until the end, that you will not fall away for good forever, okay? In other words, your perseverance proves the genuineness of your faith. It's a hallmark 
of a true believer is that you will be faithful to the end, okay? Now, believers will persevere because God promises to complete the work of salvation that He has begun in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30. We already looked at this passage several times in previous messages in this series. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Okay? So as we saw already, these are the individual elements of this package of salvation that we call the order of salvation. And each of them are linked together in this chain that's really, in essence, unbreakable. And again, notice who the subject is of all these actions. It's he, 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 he. This is referring to God. It's saying that God is doing all these things in your life. And the implication is if he predestined you and he called you and he justified you, he is also going to glorify you. In other words, get you to heaven where you will be with him and with Christ. Okay? Um, What's interesting is this. These three verbs in the original language, in the original Bible, in the Greek, predestined, called, and justified are all in the past tense in the past tense, which makes sense because these are actions in the past that God has already done for us. When you get to this verb, glorified, it's interesting because this is an event that has not yet happened to us. It's a future event. And so technically, Paul should put this in the future tense, meaning it should read something like this. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, it ought to say, he will one day glorify. But that's not what Paul actually says. He uses a very interesting verb tense, which is, okay, let me see if I could describe it. It's actually a future event described as if it already happened, okay? So it would be something like this. Like if I were to say, I was so blessed at our Christmas service this year, okay? And, you're, and if I were to say that to you, you would say, what are you talking about? It's November. We haven't even had our Christmas worship yet. And I were to say, yeah, I know that. But I am so confident that I will be blessed in our Christmas service that I'm talking about it as if it already happened. Because that's how certain I am that I'm going to be blessed, is that I can basically tell you I, I've, I've been blessed by our Christmas service already. That's in essence what Paul is saying here is he has glorified us, meaning I am so certain that God is going to glorify everyone that he predestined and called and justified that I can talk about it in the past tense as if it's already happened. In other words, there is this unbreakable chain of events that God has committed himself to carrying out in our lives. That's why Paul could say in the Philippian letter to the Philippians, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 11.29 says, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Bruce Demarest puts it like this, salvation is a package deal. 
embracing the whole of God's actions from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future. In other words, the whole thing is one big package that God has committed himself to carrying out in our lives. In other words, it would be strange, wouldn't it, if it went something like this? That it says that God, before the foundations of the world, called you and he predestined you and he's sanctifying you, and he is making you more like Jesus, and he gave you a new heart in regeneration, and he hands you this wonderful gift, and he says, I hope you don't break it. Like now it's up to you, and I hope you don't mess up so that you get to heaven because I did my part, now you do your part. It wouldn't make much sense like that, would it? And I think that's the same thing that Paul is saying throughout his letters is this is a work that God is committed to finishing in us because he is the one that started it. Okay? Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, what Paul is saying is because of the certainty of this glorification, he puts the Holy Spirit in every believer as a deposit of guarantee. It's like if you buy something big like a house. What do you do? You put down a deposit on that purchase. And what that is, is a good faith gesture to the person you're buying it from to say, I will give you the rest of the money to purchase this house. And this ginormous deposit I'm giving you of tens of thousands of dollars is basically telling you, I'm going to buy the house. I'm going to buy it, right? That's the nature of a deposit of guarantee. And that's what Paul is saying God does through the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit enters into the heart of a believer, it's basically God's deposit saying, that spirit in you is my guarantee that one day I will make good on my promise to you, that I will bring you to glory, that I will complete this work of salvation that I began in you. Believers will persevere because God promises us his power to keep us from falling. There are so many Bible verses that talk on this theme. John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is a beautiful picture that Jesus is painting of every believer being in his powerful hands. And he's saying, no one can snatch them away from me. I will make sure that they're protected and cared for by me. In John chapter 6, verse 39 to 40, it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. This is the bold claim of Jesus that every single person given to Him will be saved. I will not let a single person fall. They are under my protection. I am the one committing myself 
to bringing that person and raising them in the last day to glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 to 9 says, He will keep you strong to the end. Listen to that. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. See that? The root of our confidence is not in my performance, in my ability to make sure that I measure up to God's expectations. It is that God is faithful. He is the one that will be strong on my behalf and make sure I will enter into glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There are so many other verses I can point to in Scripture that follow this theme. It is God's faithfulness. It is God's power. It is God's commitment to you that is going to see you through to the end, not your performance, your ability to stand strong. These verses speak so forcefully of the assurance of salvation that is there for every saint because of God's power at work in our lives. Well, I want to turn now to this question of what exactly do we mean when we say that Christians, genuine Christians, will persevere? What, what do we, how are we actually defining perseverance? What does that perseverance actually look like? And this is where I want to return to that phrase that I said I'm kind of uneasy with, which is once saved, always saved. Because I think that that phrase, once saved, always saved, sort of feeds into a wrong-headed thinking that many people have that basically says this, like, if I have done certain things in my, uh, you know, my, my pursuit after God that somehow crosses me in this line from unbeliever to believer, some ritual, whether it's, like I said, saying a sinner's prayer or entering into membership in a particular church tradition, if I do those things and I'm now labeled or tagged as a Christian, it's basically like a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly, right? Like, I can do whatever I want with impunity, and I don't have to worry about punishment because I got the ticket. I got the golden ticket, you know? I'm good now. I'm in heaven no matter what. Woohoo! you know? Let's party down now because we're going to be in heaven no matter what. Isn't that what you're saying here? It's sort of like the picture I have is like, uh, foreign diplomats when they come to the U.S. I don't know if you know that this whole drama that's gone on for decades, but basically foreign diplomats park wherever they want in the U.S. and they rack up parking tickets like crazy, but they don't care because nothing is ever done to them. I mean, isn't that an awesome thing? Uh, I was reading this Wall Street Journal article and it was saying that these foreign diplomats in New York City alone have racked up over $16 million in parking tickets, okay? $16 million in parking tickets. They literally see them and they throw it onto the floor, okay? The Egyptian consulate alone has over 18,000 outstanding parking tickets, okay? Just think about that. The Egyptian consulate alone has over 18,000 parking tickets unpaid. You know, it's, it's like that. It's, it's like... You know, I don't have to worry about this. It's not my issue. I'm good. 
Uh, Dallas Willard calls this barcode Christianity, this kind of wrong-headed way of thinking, barcode Christianity. You guys, you guys all know the UPC symbols, right, the barcodes that are used to scan products when you go to the cashier line. And what Willard says is it's like if you accidentally took the barcode sticker for a carton of ice cream and you mistakenly put it on a can of dog food, and then when you go through the cashier line, you're going to pay for a can of dog food, right? And it's because the scan says it's a can of dog food. Now, the cashier knows, you know that it's a carton of ice cream. And even as you look at it, you say, this is ice cream, it's not a can of dog food. But that high school worker paying minimum wage is going to say, it's a can of dog food. I'm sorry, it scans as a can of dog food. Don't give me a hard time over this. You, it's a can of dog food, right? And that's what Willard says is the thinking for a lot of people in the church today. It's sort of like this, like whatever is the scan, the mark that you have, whatever label you have, if it's Christian, then in essence it's to say it doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter at all, you know, because you are going to be scanned in that great scanner in the sky at the gates of heaven as Christian. And so, come on right through, you know. And what Willard says is, is that really the picture of salvation that God gives us? Is As long as you've done something like say a sinner's prayer, or you are part of the right church, that you get scanned as a Christian, and after that, it doesn't matter the kind of life you live. Well, hopefully, if you've been following what we've been saying throughout this save series, you can attest to the fact that that's not the picture of salvation that the Bible gives us. Um, When we look here, what we see is that there is justification. There is this doctrine of justification that says that we are declared innocent irrespective of any actions on our part, right? There is this doctrine of justification that says God is your judge, declares you innocent, But there is also this message of regeneration, that part of the work God does in your life is rip out this heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that now it is tender toward God. It is sensitive toward sin. It is capable of repentance. There is also this doctrine of sanctification in which he is actually making us to be more and more like Jesus in our actual nature, not just being declared innocent, but also becoming holier. This is all part of the package deal of what God is doing when he saves a person. So to say, oh, that gives me a free ticket to sin all I want is an utter misrepresentation of salvation because that is just to say God is just going to stamp you as innocent and that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. The whole story is so much more than that of what God is doing in our life. And that's why we can make (coughs) the claim that our perseverance will be demonstrated in this present life by the visible presence of a growing faith in God. Okay? That is a key element of this doctrine of perseverance, is that you will show yourself to be genuine by the faith that is on display in your life. Bruce Demarest says, The popular saying, once saved, always saved, is misleading. For it may suggest that believers will be saved irrespective of how they live. True believers evidence the genuineness of their faith 
by continuing in the path of holiness and obedience. And so to persevere means to demonstrate genuine faith in your life. But at the same time, I want to affirm this, that even true believers experience backsliding and have seasons of struggle with their faith, okay? Even if you are truly saved, you can struggle in your faith and have even seasons of backsliding. In fact, to me, one of the most comforting messages of the Bible is how many of the great heroes of faith actually failed in so many ways. And the Bible is filled with them. Probably one of the most glaring examples of that is King David, known as the greatest king who ever ruled Israel, Israel, who would go down in history as, quote, a man after God's own heart. And yet this supposed greatest king, as we said earlier, commits adultery and murder. Throughout his life, David experienced victory after victory in battle, often the underdog greatly overnumbered by the opposing army. And yet, at the very end of his life, at the very end of his life, he displays this weakness where he has a census of all of his fighting men, all the soldiers that he has. And he, he's doing this sinfully. This is wrong because all his life he depended on God and now he's depending on the strength of his armies. And so as a result, God punishes Israel and sends this plague through the land, killing thousands of people. And in the midst of all of this, you can look and go, well, what's the deal with that? Like, did David persevere? Would you call that perseverance when he's practically on his deathbed and he messes up this badly? But here's the thing that I think is the key to understanding perseverance. Is even in that low point in his life, David repented and turned back to God. He recognized his sin and he returned to God again with a broken and contrite spirit. And I believe this is the ultimate demonstration of perseverance in the life of a believer. It's not about how clean a record you manage to maintain to the end of your life. It's not about how little that you've messed up and how much better you are than other people in terms of how squeaky clean your reputation is. To persevere is to return to God and trust in what Jesus has done for us despite all our brokenness and failures. To me, this is the most fundamental hallmark of perseverance is no matter how much you fail, no matter how much you fall, you come back to God again and again and seek Him in that brokenness and failure. If you look at this disciple of Jesus, Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot, it's very clear from Jesus' teachings, he says, this guy was not saved. He was not one of mine. It's interesting that he was so close to Jesus and had so many opportunities to put his trust in Jesus, but it's very clear that he never did. And as you know, uh, most of you know from the story, Judas would be the disciple that would betray Jesus with a kiss, handing him over to the religious leaders of Israel who wanted to put him to death. What's interesting to me is how much, at least from the outward behaviors, he was able to give the appearance of genuine faith 
and not actually possess it. Because at that last supper, when they're gathered around and Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me tonight. It's not like all 11 like to go, you know, like it's, it's Judas, right? Like we all know. You don't have to say it, Jesus, but we all know who it is. That's not what happened. They all are going, is it me? Is it me? Because none of them finger G- Judas as the obvious culprit in this, right? In other words, he was able to blend in with the crowd. He was able to look just like everyone else, like all the other disciples. And yet what's interesting is when Judas betrays Jesus, that's when his true colors get revealed about where his faith really lies. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 to 5, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. You see, in his contrition and remorse, he revealed a lack of any sense of faith in that instead of turning to Jesus and returning to him in repentance, he dealt with his remorse, his guilt in his own way, the only way that he could think of. Contrast this with Simon Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples. You can make a pretty strong case that Peter actually didn't behave much better than Judas, right? He really didn't. It's not like everyone else were superstars shining at that hour of greatest need for Jesus and that Judas is the singular guy who messed up. They actually all messed up. They actually all ran away, but Peter more spectacularly than the others because he boasted that he was going to be the one that was alone going to be faithful, right? He says, Jesus, even if everyone runs away, I'll be there for you. I'm going to go down with this ship. I will be by your side. Luke chapter 22, verse 54 to 62. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. He looked close, she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, I want to suggest to you that up to this point in the gospel story, Judas and Peter don't seem very different to me. They don't. They both let their Savior down. They let their Master down. They both betrayed Him. But what changes everything is how Peter reacts to his failure. Because he 
comes back to the Lord in repentance and is restored by Jesus Christ. It's interesting that, in fact, knowing Peter is going to do this, Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Do you see that? Jesus says, I'm praying for you. I'm advocating on your behalf. And I know you're going to bounce back from this. And when you turn back and repent and come back to me, strengthen your brothers with that message. Let's pray. The clear testimony of Scripture is this, that when we believe, that belief is initiated by God Himself, not by us. And what Scripture seems to lay out very clearly is, because God began this work in you, He is going to see this work done to the end. It's not like God does 80%. And he says, I'm leaving the last 20% up to you, so don't screw this up. Don't mess up. What the Scripture's testimony is, is God began this in you, and he's going to complete this in you. He's going to see you to the end. So we should take heart in that. And that does not mean, as some falsely accuse, that this is a golden ticket to heaven, and it basically gives us license to live in whatever debauchery and sin and recklessness that we want because we've been tagged with that barcode of Christian and we know we're going to be in heaven. That's a total distortion of the salvation message in Scripture. The Bible says is when God saves a person, He goes about a holistic work in our life to transform us, to make us into the person that He wills us to be. And so this doctrine of sanctification teaches us that there is this progressive holiness that we experience in our life, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, like I shared in this message today, even a genuine believer can experience some pretty spectacular failures, some pretty big falls. It's not how spotless our record is at the end of the story that determines whether we get to heaven or not. But even in our spectacular failures, even in our seasons of doubt and struggle with our faith, there is this tenacious hallmark of the true believer because of God's commitment to us of this persevering faith that returns us to Jesus again and again. That is the perseverance of the saints. Um. So one of the things that I would just invite you to do today, I think often as we close a message, the focus becomes very introspective, uh, looking at ourselves, and maybe that's the way the Holy Spirit is prompting you today to do. But maybe another dimension of this message may be what I shared at the beginning of the sermon, of people that we've walked with. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, 
I don't think it's in our place to try to make a judgment call on whether somebody's faith was genuine or not. I don't, I don't think that's our business. But I think the truth is this. We probably all know some people who at least outwardly appear to have genuine faith. But at least at this point in this season of their life, I think they themselves would even say to you, I don't, I don't know, that, that Jesus stuff, I just don't really buy into it anymore. I don't really believe anymore. And maybe one of the things that God may be prompting you to do through this message is to really pray for those people and say, Lord, um, if there is genuine faith, if that faith was genuine, then bring them back to you, even despite the season of rebellion against you. And maybe if you are really, it's seeming to be more that conclusion that you're not really quite sure that genuine faith ever really existed, you could pray for them. Say, God, I pray that you would rescue them from the life that they're living right now. Maybe today may be a day for you to give glory to God because I know some of your stories. I know that some of you were actually far away from God and actually doing everything that you could to run away from Him. But some of you represent that testimony of a God that pursued after you and brought you back to Himself. And you are here worshiping with us this day as evidence of this doctrine of perseverance, that God rescued you and recovered you even as you wandered away from Him. And maybe one of the things that God is prompting you to do in response to this message is to give glory to Him and give thanks to Him that that is a powerful demonstration of His commitment to you. However God is leading you to pray this morning, I just want to invite you to enter into a time of prayer. Let's come before the Lord right now and let's just give Him all the glory to say, I thank you that it's not up to me and my performance, but it is your faithfulness by which I stand in the security of my salvation. Let's pray.